This evening, we'll study the villains. Based on our opening, our opening reading, on the face of it, they appear innocent. For one thing, we know very little about them, apart from what we've read and a few verses elsewhere. But by the end of the study, you'll see that half a dozen men brought evil into a near paradise and led millions to die in the flood, despite God's patience and despite him sending preachers and prophets who fought to change the inevitable. We'll see the similarities between the antediluvian world with our modern age. These two latter days, even though 4,000 years apart, mirror one another. But first of all, let's examine their world and see yet another example of God's forbearance, his tolerance of mankind. Adam and Eve were punished for their sin, and we know the curses. Plus, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden, a form of paradise. Despite that, they remained in a partial paradise, in many ways far better than our present world. For a start, we know their lifespan was considerable compared with ours. There's a good argument they enjoyed a temperate climate, without seasons, the oxygen content was higher, another benefit. Plus, man had no need to fear the animals. As Genesis 1, 29 and 30 tells us, all the animals were vegetarians prior to the flood. Another major benefit was the protection from the magma, the molten rock. It's self-evident from the picture that the magma is at the center and then there's a black line, which is the rock strata. Then the waters above that, which were apparently 10 miles deep. And then the orange is, of course, the Earth's crust, the seabed and the land. So these waters were sealed between the Earth crust. They were trapped. Until the waters were released, this split in the Earth's inner crust didn't cause the devastation the world now suffers. Once that lower rock strata fractured, it was the start of the age of volcanoes, earthquakes and tsunamis. Major quakes, we have more than one a month, and great quakes, magnitude eight, once a year. We know it's common for some people to blame God for these disasters, but we can see mankind has only itself to blame. So, we see God in his mercy provided Adam and Eve and their children with a far safer world than we live in. But as usual, sin ruined it. Just as I suggested in the first part in February, I believe the peace and prosperity was partly to blame for this lack of interest in God during this pre-flood period. The lives were good, and they questioned the need for God. Bottom left, we have the heroes and the villains. On the right are the descendants of Eve, the sons of God, and on the left, the seed of the serpent, the sons of Cain. 
Cain's list finishes with the three children of Lamech, Jabal, Jubal and Tubal Cain. So does this mean there were no ninth or tenth generations? Not at all, as we will see later. Adam's at the top of the list, so a brief thought about him. He let us down, didn't he? But would we, as Christadelphians, have been any different? I like to think that none of us in our community would have taken the fruit, but if not one of us, there's always one who knows better, such as Cain, and it only took one to cause the downfall. The other aspect is being wise after the event. We know of all the pain and suffering that followed, but Adam had no idea. He had no possible way of comprehending the terrible diseases, wars, and all the other horrors that he was bringing to mankind. I like to think if he had foreknowledge, he would have found some way to guard the tree. For this reason, I believe he was God-fearing and taught both his children and seven generations afterwards to serve God, and this included Noah's father. So, if these villains brought an action against me for slander, how could I defend myself, apart from knowing I'm permitted to slander the dead? I think there's three reasons. Firstly, we know the meaning of a biblical name is almost always a statement about the person, and some of the villains had names which are significant in establishing their guilt. Next, their careers are a clue. Why does God record their jobs, their careers? If they'd been butchers, bakers and candlestick makers, I doubt this would be on record. There are no wasted words in the scripture, so why list their careers unless they're significant? Thirdly, we share their sinful disposition, so we're able to recognise evil. We know human nature, we know evil works. We don't need to be wicked to know that Cain and Lamech and Nimrod each had an arrogance that was colossal. So it's necessary to think how they thought and consider what we would do if we didn't have a conscience. Between them, these men were responsible for almost every rotten thing that's duplicated in our world. We live in a time that is so evil it sickens us. Mankind dreams of wickedness and cruelties that is almost beyond belief. But I'm sure it was the same then, because God saw that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Cain, he was the start of the rot. If we had any doubts, he was evil. John confirms it in his first epistle in chapter 3, verse 12. Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. We know of the murder of his brother Abel, so let's pick up the story after. In verse 16, we read, He went out from the presence of God. By contrast, in the final verse, verse 26 of this chapter, others did not. Then began men to call upon the name of Yahweh. So here we see the two parallels, the evil, ignoring God, and the good, seeking him. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Enoch. And he builded a city, and called the name of the city, after the name of his son Enoch.
a dramatic career change from gardener to civil engineer. Why? Well, he had no choice, as we see in verse 12. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto her, unto thee, her strength. So why is this new career recorded in the Bible? Sounds innocent, and it could have been. The city was named after his son Enoch. Enoch means dedicated. But dedicated to who or what? In the case of good Enoch, it's likely he was dedicated to God. But for Cain, I'm sure Cain dedicated the city to God and Mammon, which is impossible, as we know, for I hope to prove this was in his mind. So in Jude 11 we read, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Here, Jude was writing to the Ecclesias and warning them of two examples of false brethren. We can ignore Balaam's example and simply link the two phrases I've highlighted, the way of Cain and again saying of Kor. Korah, Dathan and Abiram did exactly as Cain did. They challenged the way God should be worshipped. Korah disputed Aaron's right to be the priest and aspired to be the priest himself. When Cain made his sacrifice, it wasn't because he'd misunderstood what he was to offer. He chose to offer a sacrifice from his produce, and not the animal sacrifice God demanded, which required the spilling of blood. It's obvious Cain was a man who wanted to worship God, but on his own terms. And Jude is telling us Cain wanted to set up his own apostate form of worship. He has all the signs of a man who wanted to build the Vatican and rule as Pope. But I wonder if there may be more to this city. City means eyes open. And perhaps Cain's eyes were open to another thought, a way to make money. There are notorious cities recorded in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah immediately spring to mind. Earlier, I mentioned a parallel with our time. London is also nicknamed Sin City, for reasons I doubt I need to expand upon. I don't think there's any doubt that Cain was a clever man, maybe the first entrepreneur, and not just for building a city, but for the second motive <coughs> I hinted at. Cain means gain, and I believe this is significant. I think he called together a group of people, probably the most notorious in the area, the publicans, as in innkeepers, the harlots, witches, wizards, magicians, the casino owners, obviously whatever gambling was popular back then, plus the fortune tellers and soothsayers. He made a proposition to make them wealthy. I'm building a city, he told them. And with each of you, I'll agree on a long-term lease for the prime properties, just inside the gate. Instead of being scattered around the countryside, as you are now, relying on passing trade, you'll all be located in one area, 
which will quickly be known as the Pleasure Palace. He could have called it Soho. In addition, he continued, I'll build flats, I'll build penthouses on the city walls and sell them to the wealthiest of nobles. So you'll all be gathered together in one place. Their money and you. So who will be the first to sign up? Can you picture the contrast with a small group of pre-flood Christadelphians living in quiet villages? We remind you that many years later, Lot was safe while he lived in his tent, but when he moved to Sodom, his life was almost lost. He was God-fearing and took no part in the activities, but it's never wise to be closely linked with the evils of the world. Even when he did leave, the angels had to drag him out as he tried to save others of his family who refused to leave. Next on the list is Lamech. His name means powerful. And I think of him and Nimrod being similar. The same arrogance, the same disdain for everyone else, the same blatant disregard for God. Also the same response as Cain to anything that upset him. Kill them. Clearly violence was the answer. He was a first polygamist. He had what some men fantasize the trophy wife, Ada. Her name means ornament. He would take her to the swankiest nightclubs in Enoch, Cain City, and show her off to his friends. And then afterwards, back home to a late supper prepared by his other wife, Zilhar, whose job it was to ensure his household was perfection. It's his boast we know him best for. He called his wives in and made a speech. We've already read this, so let's just compare the King James Version with the translation in the Revised Version, where he's boasting what he intends doing, not what he has done. The young man was obviously Enoch, and later we'll turn our attention to him and connect these two men. Before, it's, before that, it's certain there was already persecution. The name of Lamech's father... Methuseal, or Methuseal, means they are destroyed who are of God. Seems he was expecting to dedicate his life to killing God's people. Centuries later, we recall the intention of Haman to kill all the Jews, simply because of his hatred of one Jew, Mordecai. And I believe we can draw comparisons here with Gog. I won't read from the screen, but if you're interested, maybe jot down the two references for later. It's not conclusive proof, but the Bible uses the same Hebrew word for Haman's device to destroy the Jews and the evil thought that will or has come into the mind of Gog. So is the thought a contrivance, as you can see there in green? Not just to steal their resources to take a spoil, that annihilate the entire race. We know anti-Semitism is universal and growing, plus the majority of the UN is anti-Israel. So we'll go use some action, some infringement by Israel as an excuse to justify bringing the nations together to punish the Jews. 
Enoch was 65 when he began to walk with God. And that was also the age when Methuselah was born. This must be significant because Methuselah's name means after him it shall come. I don't think it's much of a stretch of our imagination to realize that it is the flood. After him the flood shall come. I wonder if it was through a vision he knew to call his son by that name. God chose him at 65 to begin his work as a prophet. That was what Lamech hated, the prophecy, and caused him to boast that he would kill him. So it was not only the prophecy of Methuselah's name, but also this prophecy in Jude that caused the conflict. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. This obviously was not popular, particularly with Lamech, since it was most certainly aimed at him primarily. And so it was that Enoch was taken away by God to somewhere safe. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. The strong defines it, transported, taken away. He was taken away so that he should not see death. But of course he did die, because as we see in verse 13, these all died in faith. But he was taken away so that he would not see death then. Let's consider Lamech's children. In verse 20 we read, And Ada bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. He appears to have been a businessman, maybe a cattle baron. I wonder if God records this because he represented the worst in business. Names have significance in the Bible. So combine that with his work, and we can see the character of the man. His name means pomp and pomposity. The stereotype of the CEO who puffs himself up just because he can make money. When I said worst in business, it's because his type has total disregard for anything but profit. He can take the form of misapplication of trust, perhaps selling subprime mortgages which ruined tens of thousands and almost called, caused a worldwide recession. Incidentally, they're still being sold for under a new name. Some businesses exploit people, be they workers or clients, and we all know how some industries have been a contributor to local and world pollution. Tobacco is the perfect example of big businesses which do not care People who produce cigarettes are drug dealers. Nicotine is a drug, an upper. Plus they add chemicals to increase addictiveness, nearly half of which are harmful and 69 cause cancer. And for some reason, this is legal. The only product this business produces does not supply anything of any benefit to anybody. To these people, the love of money makes them destroyers. 
even selling flavored cigarettes to children in Eastern Europe, Latin America, Africa, Asia, and India to make them addict customers for life. Go to schools in these areas and despite legislation, there are sales outlets within 100 meters with brightly colored packets of cigarettes and they're mixed in with the packets of sweets. What of Jubal? He was the father of all such as Handel, the harp and organ. If I tell him his name means pleasure, it's a fine indication of what he represents. Jubal may have played electric guitar. That surprise you? And Solomon tells us there is nothing new under the sun. By reference, we know that the root of harp is twang. Reminds me of Twain Eddy and his twangy guitar. That's a very early LP cover. What's an LP, Grandad? Notice the album cover, Twanging of the Storm. We read that brass and iron were known in verse 22. Now, brass is an alloy of copper and zinc. Therefore, copper was known. Add this to wind power and iron, and you could make a simple generator, hence electricity. Far-fetched? Maybe. But what I'm about to say may strengthen the claim. You and I have an average life expectancy of 70, maybe 80 years. So by the time we're 16, assuming 10 years retirement, it leaves around 50 years to gain a further education, start a career, and have a family. These guys had 17 career lifetimes before they reached 900. A period equal to the time from the Norman invasion to the 20th century. A very, very lengthy lifespan. So, no wonder Tubal Cain invented what he did. He had plenty of time to gain experience and to experiment. So, it wouldn't surprise me if electricity was invented back then. I recall in the late 50s when it all started as rock and roll. Uh, American pastors in particular called it the devil's music. I don't think they believed it, but they were scared because they could see the reaction of teenagers to this music. The teenagers rebelled against the establishment, against their parents. And one way this showed itself was violence, for example, ripping up cinema seats at a showing of rock around the clock. Recently, I went to a recital of Handel's Messiah. And as far as I could tell, there wasn't one seat vandalized, which was a surprise, because there were some very dodgy people there, particularly in the choir. Rock music excites, but is it evil? I suggest the evil is in the connections. Permissiveness and drug abuse. We know neither were invented in the 60s by any rock musician. Permissiveness goes back thousands of years, and it's on record that drugs were regularly used by musicians in the 1930s and later, and possibly earlier. Where rock is guilty was that the 60s brought these evils into the public consciousness. And I know because I was there. 
It was the stones, the rolling stones, that made them common knowledge. It started with the drug bust that took Jagger and Richards to court and being in possession of drugs, put them in jail. All this was headlined in the press and once it was public knowledge, many saw the attractions. And this was when the sense of personal freedom, the rights of the individual and hedonism re-emerged. This sense of freedom, the belief that anything goes, has worsened over the decades at an amazing rate. We don't know what happened back in the days of Jabel, sorry, Jubal. However, I think it's fair to presume that what happened in this world was a reflection of what occurred 5,000 years ago. Sin is sin and temptation is temptation, whatever the era. Jubal's name, pleasure, is what most of the world seeks and is a constant threat to our spiritual lives. It's also worth mentioning how much violence is now present in heavy rock lyrics. And I have little doubt it's simply a repeat of Jubal's day, evidenced by the lyrics of his father's boast, which supposedly became a popular chant of violence. Verse 23. She also bare Jubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Brass and iron are basic engineering metals. Though there is a great deal of technology involved. They're innocent, I've used them myself, however, not to build weapons. This passage in 1 Samuel is a clue describing Goliath. I won't read the highlighted parts, but you can see brass and iron are predominant in Goliath's weaponry and armour. There are no other metals mentioned in Genesis, but brass is an alloy, so there were other metals. So technology was part of Tubal Cain's talent. These others weren't mentioned in his infantry because I presume that <coughs> weaponry was his major interest. I'm guessing he became the first arms dealer, selling to anyone who wanted to start a small army. Perhaps his dad was his first customer, looking for a weapon to slaughter Enoch. I think it's fair to say that in modern times, in so many countries spending such a high percentage of their GDP on buying armaments, it leaves little in the treasuries for welfare and overseas, overseas aid to feed the poor. I've always been a firm believer that there's no reason why starvation could not be eradicated if the will was there. And we know one day swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. So, we can summarise and compare. We can see quite clearly the comparisons between the past world and our own. In the antediluvian world, I put question mark against pollution, drugs and war. Because as far as I can tell, there is no direct evidence. All the other evils were present in both worlds. So on the right, we see the evils created by Cain, church apostasy and sin cities. Jabel, callous big business, only interested in profits at the expense of people. 
Jubal, representing pleasure, fornication, degenerate lies, and drug dependency. And Tubal Cain adding weapons to what was already a violent world. Very quickly, because it's only one of these QI details, but I bought a book in 2000 uh, entitled The Year 1000, which dealt month by month with day-to-day life, the social history, as it was in England in the year 1000. And it wasn't in Britain, it was in England. So, reading the highlights very quickly, people were light-headed through the lack of solid food and modern chemistry has shown that the ergot that flowered on rye as it grew mouldy was a source of lysergic acid, LSD, the cult drug of the 1960s. Poppies, hemp and darnel were scavenged, dried and ground up to produce a medieval hash brownie known as crazy bread. And then down the bottom, medieval morphine, rather like the skin of frog, cited in Shakespeare's Witches Brew in Macbeth, which was shown to possess psychedelic properties. My guess is if our ancestors knew about drugs, I'm sure the pre-flood people did as well. We all know, as it was in the days of Noah, we realise that giving in marriage, etc., was not a sin, but the sin was that God was ignored, as he is today. That was the message, but of course we could add these global comparisons as well. What a mess. And so we come to the final character in our list of villains, Ham. Yes, Ham, Noah's son. And I realise I might have an argument over this, but it's my personal opinion. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that the eight that entered the ark were saved by their righteousness. The seven others were, I'm sure, but I doubt Ham was. As evidence, we have the sin with his father's nakedness after the flood, which begs the question, was Ham wicked before the flood, or did God simply know he wasn't God-fearing? If so, did God take him into the ark as part of his plan? We don't know the answers, of course. There's an interesting justification of me uh, defining Ham as a villain. There's a leaflet published by the Detroit Christadelphians entitled The Miraculous Significance of Numbers and Colours as They Appear in the Holy Scriptures. It's a catchy title. Irrespective of that, it tells us as it is. In this leaflet, you can read how Jesus' name in the Hebrew adds up to eight Eight, eight. Eight being the number of immortality and resurrection. A new beginning. So we can see how Jesus represents resurrection and a new beginning. That's obvious and it's the basis of our hope. We know the ark represented a new beginning and resurrection. The death of the old lives and the rebirth of the new. Though obviously not to immortality. So, if we add up the known names of the ark, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we get 960, sorry, 936. What if we take Ham out of the equation? Well, you'd be disappointed if I didn't say 8, 
eight, eight. And of course that's exactly what the sum of the other four equates to. They were the only men who symbolized a new beginning, starting new lives dedicated to God. Earlier, when we were looking at the genealogy chart, I mentioned the missing names in the family tree after Jabal, Jubal and Tubal-Cain. They were the unnamed ninth and tenth generations of the line of Cain and brings us to what, what I believe the final straw that brought the flood. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. We don't know how many of the sons of Eve turned their backs on God, but I've made a rough calculation. Assuming all the married couples had three children, we're looking at perhaps 250 from Enoch, and more if you add earlier generations who were still living. So 250 thereabouts deserted the right-hand side of our family tree, leaving eight people on their own. To me, it's almost beyond comprehension how so many of the seventh, eighth, and ninth generations could be seduced. And it wouldn't only be the men of God attracted by the women. I can imagine how the daughters of God were drawn to the seed of Cain. We've just read, their children became mighty men, men of renown. Also, the prosperity and pleasure the sons of Cain were enjoying was a great temptation just as the pleasures of our modern world are a temptation to us. Either way, the number of those that abandoned God was horrifying. Can you imagine that happening in our society? I can. Hopefully, not in such great numbers. But ones I've known are into double figures. We know it's happening in various ecclesias and will probably continue the world tempts us with all the things that are a sinful nature. And what makes it worse, we're told it's all right. By contrast, when I was a teenager, the notion of an unmarried man and woman living together was disapproved of. Not just by Christadelphians, but by society. Now society tells us it's normal. And a man and a woman are old-fashioned. We're free, gender-free. What we've seen this evening is very negative, and if unchecked, we know it will get worse. So let's conclude with a positive message. Let's bring ourselves back to thoughts of God's existence and his power and the future under his control. We can't see him, we can't hear him, but we know he's here. God and his angels are working in the background, as always, bringing us nearer and nearer to the time when we'll see the return of his son. So, a short story with a tenuous connection to our subject, but with a positive message. So, a warning, come to my Bible studies. You can
can be sure of a story. She hid and waited, knowing she'd put herself in the gravest danger. They could all be killed, not only herself, but the whole family, father, mother, and her brothers. She drew strength from her trust in her father and his God, her God. Regardless, her body shook with apprehension, despite the gentle warmth of the morning sun on her skin. She knew the maidens always came down to the river first, spreading out along the bank, leaving the space free where their mistress came for the ritual washing each morning. At the expected time, the great doors opened and the maids streamed out, taking up their positions. <clears throat> Pharaoh's daughter glided through the doorway, tall and majestic, her bare feet noiselessly following the marble walkway down to the Nile. She paused before raising her head and stretching out her arms in silent prayer to the sun, before lowering her gaze in homage to the great river god. Miriam saw the woman's surprise when she saw the small bundle floating, nesting in the semicircle that had been cut in the rushes. Miriam wasn't surprised. Despite only the moonlight, she'd carefully positioned the ark so the woman couldn't fail to notice. Pharaoh's daughter motioned to a maiden who waded through the water to retrieve the bulrush ark. While she took the small bundle from her maid, Miriam abandoned her hiding place and strode towards the jetty. When she was only a short distance away, she was relieved to see the woman's head, to see the woman's broad smile the instant she lifted the covering. She gazed down at the handsome baby. He began to weep. This is one of the Hebrews' children, she whispered. She turned as the ten-year-old stopped beside her. She compared their features, the girl and the boy. It wasn't by chance this young girl appeared from nowhere. Is he yours? Miriam ignored her question and repeated the words her father had instructed. Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child? She paused before emphasising the important words. For thee. The woman was silent, no doubt, considering the proposition. If she thought she was being manipulated, did she care? Having been offered this amazing gift from the Nile God? She lifted the boy from the ark and held him close. His plaintive cry ceased as she cuddled him. Go, she hushed. While Miriam ran to fetch her mother, Pharaoh's daughter considered her father's law. No, it hadn't been broken. The child had been put in the Nile in accordance with the decree, even though it was in the Nile, and placed in the shelter of the rushes so the current hadn't taken him out to sea. She held the boy at arm's length. My son, she sighed. She looked from the bulrushes to the boy. Moses. He'll be called Moses. Isn't it a thrill to see how God manipulates people to ensure his will is done? The Israelites were slaves. But this woman was the instrument to save God's people from her people. And today's world leaders, so-called, are being used by God. And we know, for unto us, a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulder. 
Through God's grace, we will all very soon be his servants. Dinosaurs entering the ark. Um, if you've seen Jurassic Park, you may be wondering how something that large would get into the ark. But you'll discover in part two, God willing. So, what does the Bible tell us about the pre flood world? On the right, we have Strong's various definitions for heaven. It may surprise you there's only one Hebrew word for heaven. In Genesis, there are two uses. The sky in verse 8, and God called the permanent heaven, that is the sky. And the second is in verse 17, and God, starting with verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of the heaven. So clearly that refers to space, outer space. There isn't even an alternative word for God's abode. So when we come to Solomon's prayer, the dedication of the temple is the same. And he, Solomon, said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath. Uh, back to the top of the page. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so. There was a band of water above the firmament, above the sky I should say, a hundred miles up. Invisible waters surrounding the world. How do we know it was a hundred miles? Because in recent years traces of water have been found in this upper region. Scientists are curious why they should read their Bible. The answer is right there in Genesis. There isn't very much in Genesis telling us about the situation on the earth at this time, but I've picked out everything I can find. So every herb bearing feet, uh, seed and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you, Adam, it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth I have given every green herb for meat, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So summarising, everyone was vegetarian. Uh, can you imagine T-Rex using his great teeth to crack a coconut? Not as exciting as eating humans, but that's the way it was. Verse 5. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. There went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So, of course, the dew is the mist, and the absence of rainbows was because sunlight and water vapor combined to make a rainbow. And there was no water vapor at that time. 
looking at the last verse. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventh day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Later, we'll deal with the large um, stores of underground water, plus those in the atmosphere. Verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for, for you. So you can see, it was only after the flood that Noah was told by God that he could eat any fish, any fowl, or any animal he wished. No mention here of unclean animals. I think we can assume these were outlawed by God. This must have been the time that some herbivores, such as lions, became carnivores. Prior to the flood, there is a theory, a stress theory, regarding the world's topography prior to the flood. Pangea. It's Greek and it means the whole earth. It was in 1858 that Antonio Snyder, an American, noticed the similarity of the shape of Africa and the Americas. So you can see the left, the west coast of Africa fits perfectly into the east coast of the two Americas, that's North America and South America. He published these drawings showing before and after. Here is a more recent and detailed illustration. As you can see, the connection between the Americas and Africas is obvious, although it's one landmass at this point, not two. Now, obviously, the landmass is split into smaller pieces, into the continents as we know them, but how? One answer was that it was caused by continental drift, the continents slowly drifting apart until we have the world as we all recognize. And, of course, the scientists will tell you that this happened over millions of years. Where have we heard that before? Well, it wasn't a drift, a slow movement, it was fast, and it started four and a half thousand years ago. Just think how much easier it would be if the continents were supported by water, like gigantic rafts, so that with enough lateral pressure, they'd float apart. And it has a name, it's called hydroplate theory, and again, I'm stressing theory. Hydro, as in water, so the water is under the land masses, and the plates are the broken crusts of the earth. The video I'm about to show details this theory and demonstrates what tore these landmasses apart. Shows how the fountains of the deep formed the world as we know it. Before showing it, I'm going to stress that Dr. Walt Brown, that's him, he believes as we do. So he believes he doesn't believe in theolistic evolution, but he does believe in Genesis. So he believes in six-day creation, that the flood was worldwide, not local, and that it all started 6,000 years ago. 
in his book, he actually provides 74 um, contradictions, all biblical, against theistic evolution. Now, I stress this because I don't want you thinking it's false doctrine. Um, it's not scripture-based, obviously, so it's your choice if you believe it or not. see on our planet 17 very strange features which can now be systematically explained as a result of a cataclysmic global flood whose waters erupted from subterranean chambers with an energy release exceeding the explosion of 10 billion hydrogen bombs. This explanation shows us just how rapidly major mountains formed. It explains the coal and oil deposits, the rapid continental drift, why on the ocean floor there are huge trenches and hundreds of canyons and volcanoes. It explains the formation of the layered strata and most of the fossils, the frozen mammoths, the so-called ice ages, and major land canyons, especially the Grand Canyon. The pre-flood Earth probably had only one very large supercontinent covered with lush vegetation. There were seas and major rivers. The mountains were smaller than today's, but perhaps 9,000 feet high. According to the hydroplate theory, the pre-flood Earth had a lot of subterranean water, about half of what is now in our oceans. This water was contained in interconnected chambers, forming a thin spherical shell, about half a mile thick, perhaps 10 miles below the Earth's surface. Increasing pressure in the subterranean water stretched the crust just as a balloon stretches when the pressure inside increases. Failure in the crust began with a microscopic crack which grew in both directions at about three miles per second. The crack following the path of least resistance encircled the globe in about two hours. As the crack raced around the earth, the overlying rock crust opened up like a rip in a tightly stretched cloth. The subterranean water was under extreme pressure because of the weight of the 10 miles of rock pressing down on it. So the water exploded violently out of the rupture. All along this globe encircling rupture, fountains of water jetted supersonically almost 20 miles into the atmosphere. The spray from this enormous fountain produced torrential rains such as the earth has never experienced before or after. The Bible states that all the fountains of the great deep burst open on one day. And it describes these events about 5,000 years ago, which we can now tie together scientifically. Some of the water jetting high above the cold stratosphere goes into supercooled ice crystals and produce some massive ice dumps, burying, suffocating, and instantly freezing many animals, including the frozen mammoths of Siberia and Alaska. The high-pressure fountains eroded the rock on both sides of the crack, producing huge volumes of sediments that settled out of this muddy water all over the earth. These sediments trapped and buried plants and animals, forming the fossil record. 
This erosion widened the rupture. Eventually, the width was so great that the compressed rock beneath the subterranean chamber sprung upward, giving birth to the mid-oceanic ridge that wraps around the Earth like the seam of a baseball. The continental plates, the hydroplates, still with lubricating water beneath them, slid downhill away from the rising mid-Atlantic ridge. After the massive, slowly accelerating continental plates reached speeds of about 45 miles per hour, they ran into resistances, compressed and buckled. The portions of the hydroplate that buckled down formed ocean trenches. Those that buckled upward formed mountains. This is why the major mountain chains are parallel to the oceanic ridges from which they slid. The hydroplates, in sliding away from the oceanic ridges, opened up very deep ocean basins into which the floodwaters retreated. On the continents, each bowl-shaped depression or basin was naturally left brimful of water, producing many post-flood lakes. The demonstrations you have just witnessed of a massive worldwide catastrophe in antiquity supports the biblical story of the deluge in every detail. Basically, what Walt Brown is saying is that a, a spit a point in time, obviously when God planned it, there was a small fracture somewhere in the earth and the pressure of the water, which had actually been underneath the skin of the earth for 1,656 years, had been expanding and, expanding and contracting twice a day because of the moon. So, of course, it was building up its pressure so that when this crack arose, then the, all the fountains went jetting up into the sky, actually into outer space, because there are meteors, um, asteroids, etc., which have come back to Earth with water molecule, science water molecules in them, which scientists say have come from outer space, from other planets, but of course they are in fact just returning back to the Earth. And that that actually caused the drift. So the continent started um, drifting apart. And it all happened over a bunch of hours or days. So we'll come on to history now. The period between creation and flood was 1,656 years, a time span which is over a quarter of the 6,000 years since creation started up until now. So we can see it's a long time, but very little happened. God's record is only three chapters and tells us very little. Uh, by contrast, if you think in Britain alone, what has happened since AD 363, um, obviously there's a lot of history that we have but there's not a lot in the Bible and don't think that this lack of events is due to a small population um, brethren Don Pierce and Jim Cowie they reckon 2 billion and brother Josh Smith from Christchurch who gave the um, video sorry the DVD last year on Grace he estimated 6 billion so, whichever figure you take, it's not a low population. Obviously, there were happenings. Strangely enough, I couldn't find any mention of idolatry. 
so perhaps it wasn't until Nimrod came on the scene, um, obviously after the flood. No doubt there were ever-present wars and conflicts, but little in the way of good, good events. And I think this is the point. Mankind was so far astray from God, so wicked, that there wasn't anything positive to record. Only eight people saved tells it all. It's just my opinion, but from this lack of significant activity, I get the sense that nothing was going to happen until God had cleared up the mess that mankind had made. I could be wrong, but in excess of 1,600 years and only three events, significantly important that God recorded them. Um, and all those events were negative. Obviously, the fall of Adam and Eve, Abel's murder, and Enoch taken to safety to protect him from possible murder. Here we see the genealogy of the line of Seth. Seth being the, uh, the descendants of Eve, named in Genesis 6 as the sons of God. In part 2, we'll see the genealogy of the line of Cain, the seed of the serpent, and study the conflict between the two. This evening, we'll only have time to look at Noah. Before we leave it, note the red portions on the timeline. These show the age at which each man started a family. Adam 130, Seth 105, and you can see Noah is certainly the odd one out, 500. Uh, I'll come back to this. One thing we need to establish is when Noah started the ark, and the reason will become obvious later. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. Japheth, the firstborn, was 100 when the flood came. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he, is also, that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, does it mean that there will be 120 years before the flood, or does it signify man's lifespan would reduce to 120 years? Along with other Christadelphians, though not all may be, I believe it's the former. Despite Genesis 6:18, which was spoken before Noah started building and before he had children. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Confused? A good God referred to Noah's children and their wives before they were born. I'll leave that thought in your mind for a few minutes. So we come on to the famous Hebrews chapter with regard to the faithful. By faith God, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Things not seen, clearly that refers to the rain, um, possibly a concept that, even Noah, that Noah didn't even understand at that time. Moved with fear, does this suggest he did what he did because he feared the consequences if he didn't do as God required? Strong's concordance suggests to reverence. So Noah was moved by reverence for God's word 
not through fear of disobedience. We also see apprehensive. That's a natural emotion, isn't it? We're always a tad apprehensive. We're correctly doing God's, bid God's bidding that our works please him. It's a healthy attitude. Amongst all of the population, Noah stood out as special. However, there can be little doubt Noah's father, Lamech, and his grandfather, Methuselah, also found favor with God, but it was Noah that was chosen. After all, he was a preacher, plus they didn't match Noah's special relationship with God. They weren't chosen, but both died before the flood, probably for natural causes, because no doubt God wanted to save them from the agony of drowning and any association with evildoers. Now Adam was Lamech's great, 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 great grandfather, yet he was still alive when Lamech was 120. This meant the whole family, all of the generations, would have been able to consult Adam about everything from the time of the creation. Enoch had already been taken when Noah was born. Even so, Noah was obviously reared with the knowledge of God and served him from childhood. And yet one thing surprises me about Noah's family. Christadelphians have always had family hierarchies, dynasties, the same family names are predominant. Here we have a five-generation family. I'm third generation, as are others at Studley. And many family members, though not all, of course, are in the truth. But what happened to the majority of Noah's ancestors? Why weren't they in the truth in the ark? We know his great-grandfather Enoch was God-fearing, as I'm sure was his grandfather Methuselah and Noah's father Lamech. But add up all the other relatives, Methuselah's uncles and aunts, his siblings, his wife, where was Lamech's brothers and sisters and their children? What about Noah's brothers and sisters, his mother, etc.? Well, obviously, God didn't consider them worthy to be saved. But I find it amazing that not even one of them joined Noah. And does this demonstrate just how wicked the people were? Maybe the verse, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and took them wives has something to do with it. So, a little bit about the character of Noah. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a just man, and perfect in his generations, and I think the best tribute, he walked with God. And to drive the point home, the chapter concludes, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So, without question, he did everything he was instructed to do. And we know what it was that God commanded, that he build an ark. This is an accurate depiction of the ark as described in the Bible. There is one um, point which I don't think is right and that is the ramp. Because God told Noah the door of the ark shall be the door of the ark shall thou set in the side thereof. Therefore the ramp and the door were the same 
and it had to be hinged at the bottom so that God simply lifted the ramp for it to seal the ark. At the time Noah was told to start building the ark, he was childless. He was 500, extremely old, to start a family compared with his forebears. Earlier I pointed out that Adam was 130, so he was very much the odd man out. Now, this is speculation, but I wonder if this is significant to his faith. We have many examples of God-fearing couples who were unable to have children until God intervened. I'm thinking of Abraham's faith in God's promise. He was guaranteed he would be the father of a nation, but he didn't have a son. Noah was told he would enter the ark with his sons, but at the time he was childless. And I wonder, was his wife barren? Another sign of his faith, perhaps? We don't know. His firstborn, Japheth, was born 20 years after Noah started the ark. So by the time Noah was well into the build, there would be a small team all working together. Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives, plus Lamech and Methuselah. When we read about men and women of faith, it's very easy to read what they achieved without fully appreciating the dedication involved. Just think about working for 120 years, building an ark. Even at my advanced age, if I'd spent all my life building the ark, I would still not have reached halfway. I would still need at least another lifetime to finish it. Woodworking is great, but not that great. Because faith isn't just about starting, it's taking the task to completion and doing it gladly. And sometimes the last part can be the most difficult. But building the ark was only part of it. Noah was a preacher. In his second letter, Peter writes, God spared not the world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. Once God had instructed him to build the ark, his preaching went to a completely different level entirely. He was given the extra task of defending his actions, actions on the face of it, which were crazy. On the assumption he lived in the vicinity of the Mediterranean, or if you remember that illustration of Pangaea, it was, the ocean was to the east, it would be logical to build the ark on one of the coasts. But of course this was false logic because the whole point was not to do, there was nothing to do with any sea or any ocean. Plus he needed to draw attention to himself and what better way than to build the largest boat ever miles away from the nearest water. <clears throat> it's the sort of promotion that Richard Branson would have enjoyed. He's undertaken many stunts to promote his businesses his attempt to fly around the world in a hot air balloon and driving a tank down Fifth Avenue. <coughs> just uh, two, to name just two. Such stunts gain attention, make people talk. And you can be sure they talked about Noah. I haven't the time to explain, but I suggest Noah's call to repent spread to every corner of the inhabited world so that all were given a chance to repent. They all knew about Noah because however slowly even normal news, even normal news before mass communication travelled from village to village, village to town, on and on, 
and I have no doubt that news of the deranged boat builder will travel very quickly. I'm sure the famous travel agent Thomas Cook, if he'd been alive back then, would have arranged excursions for the tourists. Despite preaching, how many people believed him? None. Again, it's an example of his determination to stick to God's work that he didn't give up, despite the lack of interest and despite the frustration of preaching in vain, I suggest the majority of our preaching efforts to strangers has little result, but even so, we have the responsibility to spread the word. So what did they think of Noah? Firstly, I'm certain there was a great deal of aggression, and it was only God's protection that saved him from being murdered. After all, we know Enoch was removed by God to save his life because of his prophetic warnings. Something I'll deal with in part two, God willing. Perhaps his audience didn't believe his warnings or maybe they thought they'd take the chance even if he was correct. Did they think he was crazy? Do people think we're crazy when we tell them that a Russian confederacy would invade Israel? Possibly not, because the news media has warned Russia is preparing for war, although I don't think anybody has warned that Israel is the target. On the other hand, when we tell them that Jesus will return and destroy these invaders and set up a kingdom in Jerusalem, that's far harder for them to believe. After all, it's supernatural, and I use the word insofar as it's not the laws of nature. Even then, they may not consider us crazy. After all, we're not building an ark in a nearby field, just outside Studley. Maybe they think we're odd or confused. I'm certain most of Noah's audience just lost interest. It's the same as it is today. The vast majority of people are so disinterested, so bored with religion, they never think of God or the Bible. Although when they blaspheme it, they probably don't even think of him then. And 120 years is a demonstration of God's long-suffering. He was willing to give them all time to repent, but clearly such a long time simply meant the novelty of the ark had worn off. I suggest by then Noah's audience was nil, except maybe the locals, who hardly could hardly ignore a massive boat being erected nearby. What does Peter exhort us on this subject? Knowing this first, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. As an aside, Brother Ken Stiles suggests the scoffers that Peter refers to here are Christadophians disputing the Bible truth of the creation and the world-wide flood. We don't have time to suggest, but I suggest if you read verses 2 to 7 of 2 Peter 3, you can make your own decision. Peter and Paul both refer to the mockery they had to put up with, and we can never forget the mockery that Jesus endured on the last day of his life. But how do we react to mockery? We have pride and it's tempting to shy away from anything that may embarrass us. Here with our brethren and sisters we talk excitedly about recent signs of Jesus' return because we share the excitement. 
But are we so animated with strangers who probably have no idea what we're rambling on about? Is this one of our concerns? None of us want to appear foolish, but we do have the responsibility to warn people that they're heading towards disaster. Also remember the warning of Jesus in Matthew, Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father. And that is a major warning. Is it worth risking eternal life because of a short time span of mockery? So, we come to an imaginary morality tale of the last days which will lead us on to our final thoughts to conclude our study. Hopefully, you'll paint a mental picture. I want you to imagine a narrative of one of the locals, a youngish woman, about 80, who witnesses so many impossibilities, so many miracles, but ignores them. It's normal on our way to work in the fields that some of us gather in the wide space at the side of the ark where the great door lies open. The ark is finished, although traces of the smell of pitch linger in the air. Noah and his sons approach us, however, from before they can speak, the usual loudmouth starts to jeer. It's impossible to hear him, so after a while they return to the ark. After they've left it so quiet, the silence is almost oppressive. There's a weird anticipation something's about to happen. Then we hear in the distance a rumbling noise. Noah hears it too because he and his family come to the door. It doesn't appear to be a door so much as a ramp loading, leading into the interior of the ark. We all look around to a gap in the forest where the noise is coming from. Hordes of animals enter the open space. A few I know, they're local, lions, cheetahs, bears and crocodiles and others, strange creatures I've never seen. How have they found the ark? They're all strangely docile, walking in a pack as though there was an invisible guide steering them. This is when some of us understand something remarkable is happening. Without any leadership, they're all tramping up the ramp, entering the ark. Eventually, the last pair, two doves, fly to the opening and disappear inside. Seven days later, and nothing's happened except we hear activity inside and the last sack of food is dragged into the boat. The first couple of days, most of us returned each morning. Everyone was on edge. The lack of activity was unnerving. But then the scoffing resumed. After all, the ark's ready, but no flood. Other of us, others of us aren't so sure. It's almost making sense. Noah told us the animals would be in the ark. We didn't believe him and yet they appeared. <coughs> However, the ground is as dry as it always has been, except for the morning mist. Noah approaches us and invites us in. There's less hostility from us, but no one moves. His eyes meet mine. One of my friends married Ham, and there was trouble and bitterness when she left. Afterwards, I told Noah, even if I believed him, I would never abandon my family. He looks sad as he whispers goodbye and leaves us. He walks up the ramp and disappears. There's a pause before the great door lifts. It's massive and obviously heavy to support the weight of all those animals, but lifts of its own accord and closes with a loud slam. We're amazed. For me, that's when I realized Noah's warnings over the last 120 years were probably true. 
I look around and people are scared, even our warriors, the bravest of men, are clearly worried. There's a noise far in the distance as though the earth was being split open. The ground shakes and almost immediately there's a deluge of water falling on us, just as the old man had told us. That's the moment I know we're the fools, not Noah. We all rush to the side of the boat, banging on the door, begging to be let inside. It's too late. There's a door to our safety, one for our modern age, and another escape from eternal death. Let's conclude with some thoughts on the five foolish virgins. The parable of the ten virgins was about the return of Jesus, and it was aimed at us, no one else. The disciples to whom it was addressed may have expected Jesus' imminent return, but I believe that Jesus knew it wasn't about to happen. So instead of foolish virgins, dare I say foolish Christadelphians. You see, unlike those gathering in the open space outside the ark, these virgins weren't five unbelievers. They weren't wicked. They believed in the bridegroom. They knew he was coming, just as we do. And that's why they were waiting with their lamps, why they went forth to meet the bridegroom. They had their lamps, but not the oil. They slumbered and slept. They started on the journey to meet the bridegroom, but they become lethargic, maybe far worse, apathetic. There's a warning at the end of the parable. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. It's so easy to be lethargic, lazy, putting off until tomorrow what we should be doing today. Apathy is even more dangerous. Lack of feeling, lack of passion, lack of interest to a point where there's indifference. There is a simple solution. We fill our lives doing God's work. Each of the kings of Judah is a half hour exhortation, but you'll be relieved to know I'm condensing the lesson to four, of all four to 45 seconds. You can time me if you wish. Four of the kings of Judah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, and Uzziah, started their reigns magnificently. They pleased God, so he rewarded them with prosperity and peace. That was their tragic downfall, because it made them lazy. And in later years, they backed off from doing God's work. And to fill that void, they allowed their sinful natures to lead them astray. We're also in a time of peace and prosperity, just as it was in the days of Noah. Is that going to be our downfall? We hope not. Thank you.